0: Well, I want to welcome everyone back to our series called Behind the Scenes, where we're taking a look at what God is doing in our world. We've been looking at what he's been doing in the past, what he's doing now, and what we believe that God is going to do in the future. And this weekend, we're taking just a small break, and what I want to do is I want to talk to... Uh, to all of you about how do we prepare the next generation for the future? Because we've been kind of hitting this prophecy theme pretty hard, and and it's very important. We're going to continue again next week, but I want us to just stop for a moment and say, hey, how about our kids, our grandkids, uh, the younger generation? How do we help them Prepare for the future that's coming. So that's going to be our focus. And if you want to be ready, you can take your Bibles and open them up to the book of Second Chronicles, uh, chapter 33. And that's where we'll be in just a few moments. But I wanted to tell you about uh, something that happened to me when I was a, a young man growing up. I remember my father coming up to me one day and saying to me, Son, if you ever get married, I think you better think twice about having children because this is such a wicked world and I was pretty young at the time hadn't even thought about getting married but that kind of stuck in my mind and then one day I met my beautiful wife Marsha and we got married and I thought twice and we had three beautiful wonderful children and I love my kids and I am so glad that uh, we had the joy of raising our three children but now as the years have passed by and I'm a grandfather and uh, have four uh, uh, beautiful grandchildren, uh, one who will be born in May. I, uh, I can understand what my father was thinking and feeling. Now don't get me wrong, I love my grandchildren. They are, they are a joy in my life. But, when I look at their precious little lives, and I look at this world that just seems to get more wicked each week. I have some real concerns about their future. I mean, this is not a world that is friendly to any of us, but especially to our youth. And the hope that I have for my kids as I think about the future is their relationship with Jesus Christ. And my prayer for my grandchildren, and I hope you pray the same way for your kids, your grandkids, and your, your loved ones, and, and the youth of our church. My prayer is that they will come to faith in Christ, a real solid faith in Christ at an at a early age. And uh, my prayer is that they'll have strong, uh, godly families to encourage them and come around them as they get older and face the battles that we face in the world that we live in today. And my prayer is that our kids and our grandkids and the younger generation will always have a Christ-centered church that they can belong uh, belong to and be a part of. But the question still looms in my mind, how do we practically go about getting them ready? How do we help our kids do more than just survive this world, this culture? How do we actually help them make a difference for the cause of Christ? Because If you don't take responsibility for the next generation, whether it's your children, your grandchildren, or the youth of our church, if we don't take responsibility for them, it's like handing them over to an abuser and then watching that person abuse those kids. We have to get involved. We have to help. We have to protect and we have to prepare them for the future. And the question I've been asking myself as we've been studying the book of Daniel is, how was it that Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they were young men, probably 15 or 16 when they came to secular Babylon, how was it that they were able to withstand the tests, the trials, and the temptations? How was it that they were able to not succumb to uh, pleasure and uh, the opportunity of power? And all the other things that were just laying right in front of them that they could have easily turned their hearts and their minds to. Pagan religion, different gods, different belief system. How is it that they actually became men who made a huge difference in a very secular society for the cause of Christ? What was that that happened in their life? If we can narrow that down, if we can figure out what was going on in their lives, then I think it gives us some practical ways to help our children, our grandchildren, and the youth of our church and the youth of our culture that we're allowed to influence. That's why I want you to go back to Second Chronicles with me because I want to study the influence on Daniel's life when he was a little boy. Now, our story is going to start in chapter 3 of Second Chronicles, which Second Chronicles kind of gives you as a chronicle of the lives of the kings of God's people. And I'm sorry to say that many of them were very, very wicked. And none was perhaps more wicked than King Manasseh. And we read about his story, and well, just listen to how bad he was. It says in chapter 33, verse 1, Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem 55 years. He did what was evil in the Lord's sight, following the detestable practices of the pagan nations that the Lord had driven from the land ahead of the Israelites. He rebuilt the pagan shrines his father Hezekiah had broken down. He constructed altars for the images of Baal and set up Asherah poles. He also bowed before all the powers of the heavens and worshipped them. He built pagan altars in the temple of the Lord. The place of the Lord had said, My name will remain in Jerusalem forever. Manasseh also sacrificed his own sons in the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnom. He practiced sorcery, divination, and witchcraft, and he consulted with mediums and psychics. He did much that was evil in the Lord's sight, arousing his anger. Manasseh even took a carved idol he had made and set it up in God's temple. The very place where God had told David and his son Solomon, My name will be honored forever in this temple and in Jerusalem, the city I have chosen from among all the tribes of Israel. What a wicked king. And yet if you follow the story through, you'll discover that Manasseh actually ends up being conquered by an enemy king and goes into prison. And in prison, he repents of his sin and turns his heart over to God and his life is transformed and changed. And when I read a story like that, I remind them of just how forgiving our God is, just how gracious God is. It does not matter what you've done. If you'll honestly come before God and say, I'm sorry for what I've done, God, I I want to change my life, come into my life, he'll forgive you. It doesn't matter what you've done. If he could forgive Manasseh for all the evil that he did, the abominations of sacrificing his own children, imagine what God would do for you and for me. Our God is a loving and forgiving God, and we cannot forget that. Now, you would expect that Manasseh's uh, son, Ammon, who comes to power after him 50 some years later, would have looked at his father's new and good example and decided that he was going to follow that. But Ammon doesn't. He follows his father's bad example. And the result is that he ends up being assassinated by his own people because he's so wicked. Now his son comes to power. And he's a young boy and his name is Josiah. And the question is, how is Josiah going to behave? What is Josiah going to be like? And we're given the answer in chapter 34. So turn over there and look at verse 1. It says Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. He did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight and followed the example of his ancestor David. He did not turn away from doing what was right. Now, Daniel would have lived in Jerusalem at the time that Josiah was king. For the first 15 years of his life, Daniel had a front seat to Josiah's reign and to the revival and the, re- and the renewal that Josiah brought to Jerusalem and to the people. And I just believe in my heart that Josiah made a huge impact on young Daniel. Because you know when you're young. You're very, it's very easy to be influenced. Especially by people who have power. Or people who uh, have status. Or people who are well known. And being part of the nobility. Uh, Daniel would have watched it happening right in front of him. And I think it made a huge difference in his life. To have this example in Josiah. I think. If we're going to make a difference. In the lives of our children. Our grandchildren and our youth. We're going to have to be able to point them to great examples of godly character. Even Josiah has to look all the way back to his forefather David. And it says in the text that he followed David's example. Now I know David wasn't perfect and he made some big, big sins. But David was a man after God's own heart. He started off so well and even after his terrible sin with Bathsheba. And the murder of her husband. He repents. And God forgives him. And there was much that was good to look at in David's life. And so Josiah follows that model. He wants to be like David was in David's good and and positive character. And so the question is, who are you and I pointing out to our kids, our children, our grandchildren, our youth today, as great examples of moral character? Who are the men and women that we talk about, that we encourage them to read about, or to observe, or to learn about? People in sports, or people in entertainment, or even people in politics, although you may have to look really hard there. Uh, People in business, uh, people in the community. Who are the people that you point to and say, son, daughter, now there's an example. They're not perfect, but there's an example of the kind of person that I want you to become. You say, well, pastor, there's just not a whole lot of people out there that that we can point to these days. Well, that's okay. Do you know that you can point back in history to people? There are people who've lived in the past who've been wonderful examples in all walks of life of what it means to have character and to walk with God. I know my wife, Marcia, who leads our Iwana program, at least a couple of, times of year, a couple of times a year tells the stories of and the biographies of Christians whom God has used to make a big difference. And the kids are, are riveted as she tells those stories. Now she's a great storyteller to begin with, but They love hearing about these examples. And even the adults that listen in, I am told, uh, become very interested and, and take to heart those stories. All of us are looking for men and women who've made a difference. And we ought to keep looking for those people and hold them up. Not put them on a pedestal. Not worship them like God's. None are perfect. But point our kids toward the good examples that are out there. We get too focused too focused on the bad examples that's what the media loves to do and we need to focus them on the good and the right examples but let's take that a step further it's not just pointing my kids toward the good examples that are out there i myself as a father as a grandfather as a pastor as a leader in the community i have to be a good example it's my responsibility To set a good example for the children and the youth and the people who are watching me. Because people are, (coughs) excuse me, people are always watching us. Especially kids. And they can smell out, they can read a hypocrite a mile away. So I always have to be thinking about how do I set a good example. And I want to challenge you to do the same thing. I didn't have that growing up. I had wonderful parents that that were a godly example for me. But in the churches that I grew up in as a kid, I never saw great examples. I I didn't see uh, the adults interested in me as a youth. What I did hear them talk about was what was wrong with the youth of the day. The long hair, the music, the way they dress, the way they act. I heard more about what the church was against rather than what mattered, who God was for. And I oftentimes think to myself that there had just been someone, a pastor, someone, a a leader, somebody uh, who had had a passion for Christ and a passion for youth, if they had just reached out to me, I think it would have been a blessing in my life. And I know it would have kept me from a lot of of things that I did as a youth that I, I look back at now and I'm sorry for and I regret. And I was so influential as a kid that it would have been easy for a positive role model to just make a big difference in my life. And I think about our kids. I think about our youth. And and I know they're they're like books that are ready to be written in. You know, blank books, blank pages. And they're just waiting for somebody to write on their pages. And to transfer to them moral character and great examples. The problem is we're allowing MTV and VH1 and the media and the celebrities of the world. We're allowing all these other groups to do that. When we ought to be the ones who are doing it for them. So point them to great examples and be an example in their life. Just make up your mind. You're going to be a great example in their lives. You're going to be a model. Make that the mission of your life. Let's go back to text and see what else that Josiah did. We come back to text here and it says in verse 3. During the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, Josiah began to seek the God of his ancestor, David. So he's about 16 years or so old, and he begins to seek God. Now what does it mean to seek after God? Well, I want to take you to another passage of scripture uh, where we're told about what it means to seek God. It's found in Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 26. God is speaking to his people. He's talking about the rebellion and how they're going to be punished for the rebellion. He's prophesying, you are going to rebel against me even though I told you not to do it. You're going to be punished for it and then you're going to come to your senses and listen to what he has to say. Verse 26, Deuteronomy 4. Today I call on heaven and earth as witnesses against you. If you break my covenant, you will quickly disappear from the land you are crossing the Jordan to occupy. You will live there only a short time, then you'll be utterly destroyed. For the Lord will scatter you among the nations where only a few of you will survive. There in a foreign land you will worship idols made from wood and stones, gods that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there you will search again for the Lord your God. And if you search for him with all your heart and soul, you will find him. It says that Josiah began to seek God and he was seeking after God, I believe, with his whole being, which isn't easy to do, especially in the culture that we live in today. Because there are so many distractions, there are so many things in the way, there's so much noise out there that it's hard to just seek God and focus our attention on God and and seek him with our, all of our strengths. So what does it mean to really seek after God? See, I cannot compel my my children and my grandchildren or the youth of our church to seek after God with their whole heart if I don't do it myself. I have to be an example of that. And so I've got a little assignment, a little experiment for you to try this week. In fact, You can try it as soon as you leave the service this weekend and head home. Uh, Get together with your spouse, with your friends, or with your family, and everybody decide that you're going to look for something specific on the way home or to eat or wherever you're going to go. Pick a color, pick a sign, pick an object, but something you're going to specifically look for. And then as you start your journey out and you're looking for that, every time you see it, announce it. Tell everybody, I just saw... The color blue over there on that car. Or I just saw a round sign over here. Or or, I just saw a certain kind of car. Whatever it is you're going to do. Be creative, but don't be ridiculous, all right? Now, what does that teach you? A very simple, important principle. You always find what you're looking for. You ever notice that? You always find what you're looking for. If you look for God, you will find him. Even in suffering as well as in times of success and and the big wins of life, even in challenges, even in hardship, you will find God if you look for him. And our responsibility as parents, as examples, as mentors, is to constantly be pointing out to our children, our grandchildren, and to our youth, how we have seen God in the midst of all kinds of challenges, trials, tests, and temptations. I saw God, and talk about that, because we've got to get our kids to see God. They live in a visual world, and they're seeing a whole bunch of other stuff. Help them see God with eyes of faith, because when I see God at work, you see, it stimulates my faith. When I see God at work, it causes me to want to walk with Him, and to want to follow Him as well, all right? Let's go back to the passage of Scripture and see what else Josiah can teach us uh, as parents, as adults, and as young people about what it means to really not only survive this culture but make a huge difference as well. Second Chronicles chapter 34, we'll continue on. It says, Then in the twelfth year he began to purify Judah and Jerusalem, destroying all the pagan shrines, the Asherah poles, and the carved idols and cast images. He ordered that the altars of Baal be demolished that the incense altars which stood above them be broken down. He also made sure that the Asherah poles, the carved idols, and the cast images were smashed and scattered over the graves of those who had sacrificed them. He burned the bones of the pagan priests on their own altars, and so he purified Judah and Jerusalem. You know, a very popular television show, that uh, people watch right now is called hoarding, buried alive. It's on the Learning Channel. I'd like, to take a poll at both campuses: How many of you are into watching that uh, TLC show, "Hoarding, uh, Buried Alive"? All right. a lot of people are interested. My wife, Marsha, watches it, and uh, and I I can't. And the reason I can't is because when I see it, uh, it has the opposite effect on me. It causes me to want to run around and purge the house because. I I cannot stand clutter in my life, and and I I grew up in in a home where, where, you know, that was not my mom's deal, and uh, I actually, I, I did a lot of the house cleaning growing up, and my mom worked, my dad worked, and... So maybe it's an obsession. Maybe uh, I ought to start a brand new show called, you know, Obsession for Purging, all right? But uh, I just, I want things to be, I I like things neat and I like things clean. And I love that about Marsha. She keeps our house immaculate. But she's always afraid when she leaves for a few days. Because she's afraid she's going to come back and and there's going to be a lot of things missing. Because I just, you know, it's just in me. Well, that's what Josiah does. He goes throughout Judah and he starts purging Judah of all the clutter, all the pagan ritual clutter, the gods, the the garbage that's accumulated there. He just he just starts getting rid of all of that stuff. And one of our responsibilities as parents, as grandparents, as leaders, is to get rid of the clutter in our lives spiritually speaking. And to help our kids get rid of the clutter in their lives. Now, when I was a kid, uh, sometimes my, my mother would come into my room and she would say something like this to me. She would say, this room is a pigsty. Get it cleaned up. And then I'd have to go through them and I'd have to get the whole thing cleaned up. But listen carefully. You can't tell your kids to clean up the clutter in their lives if you as a parent don't clean the clutter up in your life. If we as a family don't clean the clutter up in our lives. If we as leaders, as examples, aren't living clutter-free lives. Say, what do you mean by clutter? I, I can think of three kinds of clutter that all of us regularly need to purge our lives of. Because this garbage is like blowing into the yards of our life all the time. I'm thinking about the visual clutter that gets in our lives sometimes. I'm uh, I'm thinking about the secular clutter, humanism that gets in our lives. I'm thinking about the relational clutter that gets into our lives sometimes. You could you could use illustrations of pornography, or uh, you could use illustrations of, of false beliefs. You know that the humanist society pushes at us politically, being correct. And you could use example of, of relationships that are a bad influence on your life or on your kid's life. We got frequently walk through our lives and and purge ourselves of that stuff, discipline ourselves, repent of that stuff. And you can't just simply look at your kids and say, no, you can't watch that kind of stuff. No, you can't listen to that. No, you can't hang around with him. No, you can't dress like that. You also have to talk to them about why. You've got to bring a Biblical wor- you got to bring a biblical worldview in front of them rather than a humanistic worldview that they're being bombarded by all the time from the government, from the educational system, and from the entertainment system. I mean, it's just coming at them all the time. No wonder they pick clutter up sometimes. And what you have to do is you have to help them see it in the right perspective. You've got to help them see how you're applying it in your own life so that they see the consistency and so they see the benefit of that as well. Which then takes me to something else that happens in Josiah's life. Verse 14, it says, While they were bringing out the money collected at the Lord's temple, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord that was written by Moses. Hilkiah said to Shaphan, the court secretary, I have found the book of the law in the Lord's temple. Then Hilkiah gave the scroll to Shaphan. Shaphan also told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a scroll. So Shaphan read it to the king. When the king heard what was written in the law, he tore his clothes in despair. We have not been doing everything in this scroll. We are not doing what the scroll, what the word of God says we must do. Now what just happened here? They're cleaning out the clutter in the temple... And they stumble on the book of Moses, the words of God, the law that was given to Moses. That's how bad things had gotten in Judah. That's how bad things had gotten in Jerusalem. The very word of God was just buried beneath all the clutter and all the garbage as they're cleaning up the temple, getting rid of all the pagan gods and rituals. There was God's word. And as the word was being read to Josiah, and he's hearing it, for the first time, he's taking the word of God and he's using it as a filter for his life and the filter for the lives of the people of his nation. And he goes, oh my goodness, no wonder we're under God's hand of judgment. We're not obeying God's word. We're not keeping God's word. The greatest thing that you can do to protect and prepare and help your children, grandchildren, and the youth of our, of our church... And the youth that you influence, the greatest thing you can do to help them not only just survive the future but make a difference in the future is equip them with God's word. But I'm worried about our young people today. I'm worried that they're heading off into the world without a sense of of the truth. In fact, a survey was uh, recently done uh, by Lifeway... uh, which is an arm of the Southern Baptist Church. And Tom Rainer, who's written a lot of books, and he's kind of the CEO of their research department, studied a, a group of people called the Millennials, those people who are born between 1980 and 2000. And what uh, they discovered is very alarming and actually rather discouraging. But I want, I want to read the results to you because we need to understand this, okay? According to research done by Tom Rayner and his son, Jess, a millennial born in 1985, Millennials are a confused generation spiritually. Although 65% of this generation describe themselves as Christian, notably many of them do not know or practice the basic teachings of the faith. Only 26% say they believe they will go to heaven when they die because they have accepted Christ as their Savior. Millennials are also confused over who Jesus is. They're divided on whether Jesus is the only way to salvation... And if he was sinless. Christianity is not the belief of the vast majority of this generation. And they believe the American church to be one of the least relevant institutions in society. And to some degree, they have every right to think that. Now, here is the mysterious thing. Millennials have a surprisingly close relationship with their parents. They respect older people... And they consider the family the most important thing in their life. And that's the puzzle for me. If millennials feel that family's important, if millennials believe their parents are significant in their life and respect the older generation, where is the disconnect? Then why aren't they... Knowledgeable about the truth? And why don't they hold biblical convictions? And the answer is because the boomers, those of us who are boomers, boomer parents, boomer grandparents, we're not passing the truth on. Why? Because we become lazy with God's word in our own lives. We don't read the word and we don't practice the word. What we do is we try to remember what we learned in Sunday school or heard when we went to church a couple of times last year. What we generally think is a, is truth, and we do a lot of moralizing with our children. But moralizing is not based on God's word, it's a lie. So I can moralize that, that you know. Uh, Two men or two women can have sex and it's okay. Or I can moralize that we can change the definition of marriage. Or we can, I can moralize uh, other issues that we see going on in our culture today. I can just say, well, I think this is okay. And based on what I see in the world and what I think the Bible says or what I agree with in Scripture, here's how we ought to live. It gets diluted down into their lives. And we make it into heaven, but they don't. Because they don't know the truth. And are so easily deceived by the lies that are thrown at them by the culture, by the politic, by the educational system, and by the entertainment system, which is the devil's preaching platform in our culture today. And I'm telling you what, that here in America right now, it is way more desperate than a lot of us think. And we've got to make up our minds that as parents, as grandparents, as leaders in the church, we will do everything we can to get God's word into the minds and the hearts of, of our youth. But it starts by getting God's word into my own mind and into my own heart. I think about the words in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Listen, O Israel. The Lord is our God. The Lord alone. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. And you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly. Remember, seek God with all your heart. You must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I'm giving you today. That's the secret. If you give yourself wholeheartedly to it, then you'll be blessed. He says, repeat them in verse 7. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you're at home and when you're on the road, when you're going to bed, and when you're getting up. Tie them to your hands and wear them on your forehead as reminders Write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Now, there are some Orthodox Jews who take that literally, and they have these little boxes, phylacteries, and they have uh, the Shema in there from Deuteronomy 6, and they, they, you know, they bind it to their hands, and they tie it, maybe you've seen them in pictures, all right, uh, to their forehead. I don't think God meant it literally, because there are other passages where it's not meant to be taken literally. But here's what I do know from Biology. Take your uh, uh, finger for just a moment and just put it on your forehead. Just do that with me, all right? No, it seems kind of silly, but just do it for a, for a moment. Do you realize that when you do that, you are just a fraction of an inch from your prefrontal cortex, from the prefrontal cortex? Say, what is a prefrontal cortex? It is the part of your brain that makes decisions about behavior. So what God is saying is, look, get the word into your prefrontal cortex so that the word of God is going to help you decide the behavior that you ought to exhibit. It's the part of the brain where our thinking and our ideas and all the input comes together and we decide based on this, this is how I'm going to act. This is how I'm going to believe. So God says, get it right there. Get the word in there. So what's the deal with the hands? Well, you know, our, our hands oftentimes represent our, our strength, and oftentimes sin is committed with the hands. So in essence, what God is saying is, and get the word on your hands so that with your hands you don't commit sin, but with your hands you commit That which is good, and that which is loving, and that which is grace-filled. In other words, let the word of God so saturate your being that it decides how you behave. It decides how you look at life, and everything gets measured by the word of God. Now, my question is, what are you doing in your life and in the life of your children and grandchildren to make sure they're engaging the word of God? You know, there are a lot of creative ways to do it these days. And one of the ways that I found, and, and I want to pass it on to you, and you can do this on your, on your iPod or your, your iPad, your um, iPhone, uh, on, other, uh, on your computer, on other electronics that have Wi-Fi capability. And, and it's just great for the kids because it allows them to, to use a tool they're very familiar with in a wholesome and good way. And it's a website, and I'm going to take you there in a moment, but it's called U version, Y-O-U version, V-E-R-S-I-O-N, Uversion.com. And when you go to Uversion.com, you're gonna pull up a, a screen that will welcome you. And you can sign up for it. It's it's absolutely free. You can make notes on it, you can email your thoughts to others, some passages that you read. But there's a little tab up there, and uh, that tab has to do with Bible reading. And if you click on that, You'll pull down a little menu, and on that menu, uh, you can find the Bible reading plans, all right? So you click the reading plans, and you'll notice across the top, there are all kinds of reading plans available to you, all right? The whole Bible a topical reading plan, partial Bible, devotional. You can click on any of those, and there are over 50 different kinds of reading plans. In fact, there's one on there uh, that you can do that's solely on marriage that will last for a number of weeks, and, and all the passages have to do with marriage. And One that I've been doing is on courage. Some last a week, some last months, others last half the year, some are the whole year. The point is we need to get in the Word of God. But you can't, just, you can't just read God's word and, and then expect your kids to just read God's word. God forbid all we accumulate is knowledge. God says when you're in his word, in your family, with your children, then you need to take time to talk about God's word. And what he's dealing with there in Deuteronomy 6 is application. So I need to constantly be talking to my kids about how I am applying God's word in my life. How I am applying God's word to the challenges that I'm facing, the hardships, the difficulties, the temptations that I'm facing in life. And I want to ask them how they're doing that. And I want to encourage them and I want to celebrate with them when they make it happen in their lives. If the only time you get God's word is when you come here on a weekend, that's not enough. It's like eating one meal a week. You'll starve to death. It's our responsibilities as parents, as grandparents, as leaders, as models and examples, not just to get our kids reading the Word, but then holding them accountable and holding ourselves and each other accountable to live out God's Word as well. Now, as we kind of come to the end of all this, I was taken back in my memory to a song that I used to sing when I was a kid. And uh, this song was written way before I was a kid. And uh, I'm not going to sing it for you, but I want to read the lyrics to you. Here's how it goes. It starts out, Standing by a purpose true, heeding God's command. Honor them, the faithful few. All hail to Daniel's band. Then the refrain goes, Dare to be a Daniel, dare to stand alone, dare to have a purpose firm, Dare to make it known. Many giants, great and tall, stalking through the land, headlong to the earth would fall if met by Daniel's band. Dare to be a Daniel. Dare to stand alone. Dare to have a purpose firm. Dare to make it known. Hold the gospel banner high. On to victory grand. Satan and his host defy and shout for Daniel's band. Dare to be a Daniel. Dare to stand alone. Dare to have a purpose firm. Dare to make it known. The question I'm asking you this weekend and asking myself this weekend, will I be a Daniel? Will you be a Daniel? It starts when you're young. And it should last your whole life through. Would you bow your heads with me and let's pray. Father, I just ask you, to help us all look at the life and the wonderful example of Daniel. And seek to emulate that in our own lives. To look at the life of a Josiah. What a great example. What a model for young Daniel. And oh, God, help us to become Josiahs. And the lives of Daniels that are all around us. So that, Lord, our youth, our children, our grandchildren, may live lives that not just survive in this land but thrive for the cause of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.